It's Friday, December 22nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. A chill is in the air, as is a song. You know, I don't talk about music that much or my own personal taste in music, but you might know I'm a rock guy. I like rock. The harder it comes, the better, baby. You know what I consider real rock? The hardest rock and therefore the purest rock. Well, it's bands like Dawkins. Slayer. Ingve Malmsteen. Threatening, but great. But perhaps putting them all to shame. Uniting the igneous and the metaphoric, or the metamorphic, or the metaphoric in this metaphor, is the hardest rock, the most face-melting song to ever offer a rocktism by fire. I, of course, speak of Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Rock more than rocks. It shreds, it destroys, it unites the old gods of the ear-piercing pantheon and forces them to their knees in surrender. It scalds, just listen. Dancing and prancing in Jingle Bell Square In the frosty air How does it do it? What even is Jingle Bell Rock? There is a clue. It's a mix and a mingle in the jingling feet. That's the Jingle Bell Rock. Now, my other nominees for songs that rock the hardest, perhaps not as equally hard as the unassailable Jingle Bell Rock. Well, there's this one from Five Finger Death Punch. But I think slightly above it in the rock hierarchy is this one. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Man, does that song shred. Barbara Lee, how do you do it? Did you know, by the way, that Five Finger Death Punch had 14 songs go to number one on Billboard's mainstream rock charts? Now... There are no Shine Down with 18 songs or Three Days Grace with 17 songs. And at this point, you may be thinking the mainstream rock chart might not be that mainstream. I am unfamiliar with many of these multi-chart topping artists. But then, right after Five Finger Death Punch, with 13 number one songs on that chart, a three-way tie between Foo Fighters, Van Halen, and Metallica. Wow. But of course, Ms. Brenda Lee puts them all to shame when she sings Later we'll have some pumpkin pie and we'll do some caroling Caroling On the show, terrible news throughout the world but also not so terrible news 
There is no question, however, to which news we pay attention to. But first, Minnesota, the Gopher State, the North Star State, the birthplace of Bob Dylan and Prince and other people who kept their full names. So it is a land of solidity, but also a land of change. And you can see it now on their flag. We convene a vexillology corner. Guest Ted Kay is here to assess the new Minnesota state flag. Stay tuned for that. Major flag news, I'm sure you heard. Many people alerted me. Minnesota's got a new flag. We're going to talk to a man who was, uh, I'm going to say the North Star of at least a portion of that expert. When we convene Vexillology Corner, he is right there with me in the corner, maybe catty corner to me, pointing things out that I never even realized. He is Ted Kay. He is the secretary of the North American Vexillological Association and the editor of The Raven, which is, of course, the publication of said organization. When it comes to, oh, author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, they consulted him up there in Minnesota, and he gave them some very constructive ideas. Ted, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, it's great to be here, Mike. Describe, and please use all the heraldry terms you can, (laughs) the new flag of Minnesota. I'm not very good at heraldry terms, but to describe the flag of Minnesota, it's got a blue field to the left side of the flag, the Dexter, hoist. can you say deck? Oh, hoist, okay. Oh, yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> Since in flags, we'll say the hoist side. At yes. the hoist, right. there's a five-sided symbol that's a stylized version of the shape of the state of Minnesota. So I'm gonna stop you. Yes, so picture a rectangular flag pretty much bisected in half, so something like two squares. And then take the right side of one of the squares and pull it in. So uh, essentially an equilateral triangle is carved out of one of the squares. And maybe if you really think about it, or at this point, you could just Google it uh, from the phone you're listening on. But if you think about it, you know, you're right. It does look a little like the shape of Minnesota. How wonderful. And you did a much better job at describing it than I did, Mike. You're, You're very good. I'll make one slight correction. I don't think it's an equilateral triangle. Um, Perhaps it aspires to be, yes. It, it's it's, uh, it's uh, not as deep as an equilateral triangle would make, but it's a great image of the state of Minnesota. And if you, if you turn, it, turn it pointing up, it makes an M. It's actually pretty cool there. Well, there's, there are, in fact, a lot of M's hidden in there because, well, take me through the star. This was originally designed by a guy named Andrew Precker. The Polaris tricolor was his original design. It got changed a little, and I know you offered some suggestions, but the original star doesn't look like the star that's now on the flag. What are the differences between the two stars, and what's the logic behind the change? Correct. The commission saw flags with many, many kinds of stars on them, some five-pointed, but many of them eight-pointed. Right. Going towards North Star State, Compass Rose, pointing to the north, And eight-pointed stars are very popular in iconography in Minnesota. (laughs) Uh, There's sort of five things we can talk about here. One is it's an eight-pointed star that makes a compass rose that points to the north. The second is this form of star is in Dakota iconography. 
it's sort of like a quilt star if you turn it a little bit to the side. Mm -hmm. uh, that same symbol apparently appears on barns in southern Minnesota, kind of like the hex symbols in, in Pennsylvania. That's, that's three ideas. The fourth is this very star is in the floor in the rotunda of the Minnesota State Capitol, uh, actually in two large representations of this. And so it's part of Minnesota's historic symbolism. And then the last point, the fifth one is, the points of the star actually make M's. There, there are four M's here in this star. Right. So there's five things you could put into this star, which I love hearing called the Minnesota star. Yeah, think of any star with eight points of, and all the points are equal. If you trace them, they are making a series of M's. I never thought of that, but having been alerted to it, I can't not think of it. So that's some, that's some good design right there. That's right. And the rest of the flag uh, is light blue. The original design had three stripes. There are various reasons to simplify it from three stripes, but the light blue reflects Minnesota, the land of sky blue waters, land of 10,000 lakes, the Mississippi River. Uh, Minnesota means something like sky reflecting water. And the chair of the commission said, if you hang the flag vertically, you can see the Mississippi River flowing from the north. What? This light blue <laughs> Mississippi River flowing from the north. All right. So that maybe takes, that's like a little bit where you let your eyes react and those pictures turn 3D. I don't know if I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but yeah. it's it. It was very persuasive to the commission, and the commission, after he made that statement, their eyes all opened up, and they voted eleven one to accept this design as the next flag for Minnesota. So originally, this original design was it looked like the state. the The uh, star was a little bit different. In other words, when I said it looked like the state, it looked like the the dark blue on the left that kind of looks like the shape of Minnesota. But there was there was a tricolor, white, green, and blue, and you advised against that. What was the thinking? One was that it's not a symmetrical flag, horizontally symmetrical. Mm -hmm. That you could fly the flag upside down if it had the blue, green, and white stripes uh, on it. Uh, you actually, and you can't divide it. If you hung it vertically, which way do you, you hang it? Uh, so there's an argument for yeah. symmetry. But that's true to, for every tricolor, right? Does that, uh, that, is that, that an argument true. against tricolors in general? Uh, that, that is true. Yeah. But uh, there's no reason to make this flag into a tricolor because it already had other symbolism on it to represent the state. The second point was the green stripe, putting green against blue, means that those colors, both dark colors, are going to blend into each other as you see them at a distance. So there's a rule of heraldry, the rule of tincture of contrasting colors that's, that's a challenge there. And the third thing is that many people said, we want the green to represent the verdant nature of Minnesota. And my response to that is, well, everybody's got green. Everybody's got <laughs> verdant nature in their in their states. Uh, and so that's not very distinctive for Minnesota. So the arguments of simplicity, symmetry, contrast, and symbolism led the commission to go to a single solid color for the field of the flag. Yeah. When the Star Tribune quoted you on this, and by the way, the star of the Star Tribune is only five-pointed and clearly uh, inadequate to the task. 
you said, quote, although Minnesotans love their verdant nature, it is not distinctive for Minnesota. Nearly every state has green nature, said Kay, who lives in Oregon. And I said to myself, is that a diss or is that an acknowledgement? Oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's from Oregon. <laughs> I, I can't interpret what it Reporters say, but I was amused by that as well. <laughs> so the light blue, the dark blue, I think these are popular color combinations of the last 20 years or so. I see them on the uh, Memphis Grizzlies and the Tennessee Titans jerseys. And I don't know if, uh, you know, in the 1950s or too many other flags, those were the two dominant colors. So that's kind of uh, cutting edge. Well, and, and you referenced heraldry. In heraldry, there's only blue, and you can make the color darker or lighter as you wish when you're interpreting heraldry. In heraldry, there aren't formal design specifications. Heraldry is all specified by words, and then the artist gets to interpret what those words look like when creating coats of arms. So blue is just blue, and it's whatever color you want. So it's actually unusual in older flags to see light blue and dark blue yes. because it's both blue. But you're right. We see light blue more. There's one concern, and that is the light is the light blue going to fade over time? Uh, and the answer is yes, all, all of them are going to fade. There's another concern, which I don't think is is valid, and that is, oh, light blue is going to disappear against a light blue sky. Uh, a flapping flag does not look like a solid color, and it doesn't disappear against the sky. And so I think this is still going to be a very effective design, even flapping against a light blue sky. So a couple of points. One, I can assure you, uh, Ted, that it is not blue in heraldry, right? It's azure, azure. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. I love a nice heraldry term. And then let's say on, the, on a perfect day, the light blue part does seem to make the flag disappear. Well, that would even be wondrous because then you'd only have the dark blue shape of Minnesota, a, a non-rectangle looking a little like the flag of Bhutan flapping there in the St. Paul or Minneapolis or um, Hibbing <laughs> wind. <laughs> Do you mean the flag of Nepal? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Two yes. points. Then you'd, have, then you'd have the you flag. You were stuck in the Himalayas there. Right. So that would be cool. But you're saying it doesn't really work that way with flags. Well, and, and what we're going to see in Minnesota is a lot of people mad that the flag is changing. We, we don't like change or you're trying to cancel our history. Yeah. And the second is people who don't like that design are going to complain as well. But I predict that Minnesotans with time and familiarity are going to come to love this design. When flags really catch on, like uh, the city flag of Chicago, and you see it in all of uh, many shirts and hats, and they love that symbol in a way that the city of New York doesn't for obvious reasons, is there often uh, a trigger, um, maybe a sports team incorporates it into, uh, into the pageantry? Um, I'm thinking of like when uh, the song Mr. Brightside doesn't originally take off, then it's in the OC. But has that happened where certain events cause a flag to really take off good good media placement? At, at a city level, I think it's usually the opposite, that it's the sports teams that see the flag embraced by the people and then incorporate it into their iconography. That's certainly the case in uh, Portland, my hometown of Portland, Oregon, where the Timbers Army, the major league soccer fan group, waves 100 Portland city flags 
in the stands. In fact, some people in Portland think that's the Timbers flag yeah. because of the association. But the Timbers actually put the Portland flag on their kit a couple years ago because of the embrace of the flag in the uh, popular mind here in Portland. So I think it's I think it's true there's a connection, but I think it goes the opposite direction. I think what we're going to see in Minnesota is this design, this this state shape, the star and the colors are going to be used as elements in all kinds of things. Somebody's already talked about putting rainbow stripes in the field instead of the light blue to represent uh, a pride flag, uh, a Minnesota pride flag. And this big, more than half of the field is just this light blue block that just cries out for other things to be put there. And so folks are going to be be differencing this flag, putting something on it to represent something more than just Minnesota. I, w- I was I remember that uh, the <laughs> the Timbers, speaking of that, have a long history of uh, using different kinds of flags. And at one point they had sort of their green and yellow version of the Japanese rising sun flag. <laughs> Koreans yes. were offended by it. I mean, there was like two or three stretches away to get to a fence, but they were, and that flag was retired. That's correct. That's correct. They are big flag wavers. In fact, my tailor, uh, who works on clothes for me, is the volunteer sewer of flags for the Timbers Army. And so we have lots to talk about every time I'm in there. Oh, and what about the, is it the Thorns? Are they the uh, women's team? The Thorns is the women's team. That's right. I think it's the most popular women's team. When was the last time a state flag was changed? Uh, Monday. Yeah, before that, I mean. <laughs> Utah. Utah has adopted a new flag that will officially take effect in March of 2024. And how is the main flag overhaul going? I, I don't know. Um, I think there's a, a, a popular vote going to come up about changing the main flag. Yeah. Um, how was the process? Critique the process, if you will. How did Minnesota do it and should other states take note? I think Minnesota's process was very successful. I think the end state of adopting a great flag shows that they made some good decisions along the way. We like to say that the flag change process is 10% design and 90% politics and public relations. And Minnesota embraced a process that crowdsourced designs from all over the place, especially Minnesotans, and brought in more than 2,000 submissions, and then had a commission that was widely representative of decision makers in Minnesota on both sides of the aisle, who went through those 2,000 submissions and narrowed them down and narrowed them down. And each step of the way, they would be very transparent to the public what was going on and get public feedback. And so they created something that felt very democratic and inclusive and representative of Minnesota. And as they narrowed things down, they also consulted the flag design experts. They consulted the flag design experts to get insights into taking these concepts that people had thrown into the mix and making them great designs. I, I like to say that it's a little bit like designing a bridge that when you're going to put a bridge over the river, you can ask the public, what kind of bridge do you want? Do you want a 
suspension bridge, a tide arch bridge, a truss bridge. But once they tell you what kind of bridge they want, then you go to the engineer and say, design this bridge. You don't say to the public, how much steel do you want in your bridge? Right. Let's vote on how much steel. <laughs> so Minnesota did a great job. It consulted the experts in NAVA and had local designers drive the work of polishing the designs that had come to the commission the commission really liked and created options for the commissions to choose and resulted in a, a marvelous outcome. Ted Kay is the secretary of NAVA, the North American Vexillological Association. He is the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. He was a North Star behind the adoption of the new Minnesota state flag. Ted, as always, a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Mike, and thank you for your kind words, and I'm a big enthusiast for the new Minnesota flag. <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> that came across, yes, indeed. And now the spiel. I'm very concerned about the UN report on food shortages in Gaza, worse than shortages. Israel must not let the citizenry there starve. It is preventable. It's unconscionable. How bad have things become? Certainly on the brink of catastrophe, which is the usual warning international agencies put out to try to stave off actual catastrophe. That's the correct goal. But trying to figure out how bad the situation actually was now, I first saw the story in the LA Times. The headline was, one in four people in Gaza are starving because of war, UN report says. But that was paired with a subhead. Same story, right under those words. It said, a report on the crisis sparked by Israeli's offensive against Hamas warned that the risk of famine is rising daily. So is there a famine or is there a risk of famine? Also, was it sparked by Israel's offensive against Hamas or Hamas's? Anyway, let's put that aside. I needed to figure out what the actual situation was. I got an answer, which is that nearly everyone in the entire area is hungry and missing meals, and often missing meals for days. There is simply not enough food. The IPC does a thorough job documenting exactly what all this means, and I found out from reading the actual reports, not the coverage of reports, that it is a crisis. They predict 26% of the population has a reasonable risk of what they call phase five catastrophe, meaning about one out of three children being acutely malnourished and four child deaths out of 10,000 per day due to outright starvation or the interaction of malnutrition and disease. Israel can't let this happen. It doesn't matter if they say it's Hamas's fault or not. They can't let it happen. So those are the facts. I found the facts. In my fact-finding mission, however, I came across a phenomenon that I am constantly coming across. So I sought out TV coverage. I do this for the show. You hear that I will play a broadcaster giving voice to the topic I'm talking about. And the very first broadcast that I came across was not from the Kuds Network or Al Jazeera. This, what you will hear, is from WGN Chicago. The Israeli military campaign is in Gaza is now considered among the deadliest and most destructive in history. Military experts say in just two months, the offensive has killed nearly 20,000 civilians in Gaza. Well, no. I mean, first of all, military experts don't say 
that Hamas's Ministry of Health generates the statistics, but they don't even say that. They don't say that 20,000 civilians are dead. They say that 20,000 citizens of Gaza are dead. They don't break it out between civilians and Hamas fighters, or Hamas doesn't consider themselves militants. Israel says 7,000 of that. They don't dispute it, but it might be wrong. 20,000 are Hamas fighters. In any case, however, I actually want to go back to the first part of that very short, not even sentence, clause in a report, which says that the war in Gaza is considered among the deadliest and most destructive in history. History? We're talking about the Hundred Years' War, the Mongols killing 30 million people, and Wikipedia's list of modern wars, which, you know, they define as the year 1500 onward. There were 150 wars with a higher death toll than what we're seeing in Gaza, often much, much, much higher of the last hundred years, which skips World War I, 17 million dead. If you include death by disease, it was a thousand times as deadly as the current war. But anyway, there have been 80 deadlier wars in the last hundred years. There are currently, right now, ongoing in Ukraine, a war with a death toll of two or 300,000. The war in Yemen at this moment, which is still simmering and interacting with the war in Gaza, has a death toll of almost 400,000. There's an ongoing war 150 miles from Gaza, the Syrian civil war, not over yet, half a million killed. Stop it with this is the deadliest war. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Mike, you're not getting it. Mike, you're being too literal. Mike, the point is, it's a horror. And what matters if the horror is 20,000 or 200,000? Let's just call it too deadly. Can we agree on too deadly? Don't minimize it. Okay, Mike, one galunk of an anchor on a very watched broadcast network, said something technically egregiously inaccurate. It was a statement probably written by a second person and then vetted by a third or fourth person. So a lot of people signed off by this, but it doesn't matter, Mike. It's not about statistics. It's not about the Mongols. It's about you not getting the point. But here is the point I want to make. And it's that I know the war in Gaza is a horror and a nightmare and a human catastrophe not to be minimized. And set against all the other horrors of the world, it is far worse than anything else that we care about. Why? Because we don't care about the things we don't care about. And as a result, we come to believe, egged on by implications or outright misassertion, that the thing that we care about as being the worst really is the worst. Our impressions are shaped by our information. We can't help that. But how the media system works is that the information we get is shaped by what information the audience wants. So it's self-reinforcing, which you might hear as my minimizing a horrible, horrible war. I assure you I'm not. But if this is the only war you pay attention to or open your emotions up to or allow to flit across your consciousness or allow yourself to be bothered by, if you think this is the only war which has extremely sympathetic civilian victims or the only one with clear good guys and bad guys or the only one funded by the U.S. where many, many, many thousands of civilians are killed, whatever criteria you might be putting on the war in Gaza to say, well, this one is different, you're not going to get a much different idea based on what you see via U.S. broadcast. You're definitely not going to be disabused of any of those notions 
based on algorithmically curated social media feeds, you probably think or know people who think or think it's somewhere in the ballpark of true that things are unprecedentedly bad, have never been worse. But even if not, you think, all right, it's a moral horror. What else do we need compared to other moral horrors in the world? Well, relatedly, in 2020, every, I don't know, week, the New York Times alerted me via push notifications of another police shooting of a black man. Uh, sometimes it was a police suffocation. Sometimes the man was Latino. Once it was not a man at all, a 16-year-old girl in Ohio. And this was a crisis, and that's what we needed to know. This was a moral crisis because so many of those shootings or suffocations seemed wrong, were wrong, and this seemed ubiquitous and crushing, and there was nothing we can do about it. Now, I want you to remember that time, 2020, 2021, and I want you to estimate, let's say 2021, full year post-lockdowns, how many unarmed black men were killed by police in 2021? Maybe you know the answer. I have mentioned it on the show. But according to the most definitive database out there, the Washington Post database, which counts every police killing, how many unarmed black men were killed by police in 2021? The answer was 11. It was 18 the year before, 12 the year after. But in 2021, I'm now going to ask you, according to the CDC, how many black men were shot and killed in America by non-police officers? It's 11 by police officers. How many by non-police officers? 12,210. Which do we pay more attention to? Am I being insensitive, too statistical, unfair? There are, in fact, a lot of stories about the uptick in murder. I'm not saying there weren't any. But were those stories told with an emphasis on the loss of black life? Were there almost a thousand times more story? Was that a thousand times the emphasis? None of this is good news that perhaps the horror of black men being killed by police might while horrible, not have occurred in the numbers that many people might have thought. But none of it's good news. It's all about death. But I think you see this playing out in stories that we see as the most tragic or the most commonly tragic or the most worthy of our attention. And often these stories that we're told are the worst. Actual reality diverges, sometimes wildly diverges from what we're told is the worst. We, as a people, as a species, we're terrible at contextualizing bad news. We have probably survived in the Serengeti because we either said threat or not a threat and ran or didn't run. And the ancestors who didn't run probably didn't pass down their genes. But we're also very bad at not appreciating good news. I think this is more of a recent phenomenon. So you know we're not in a recession, right? You know that. And you know that economists literally 100% of economists in a couple of well-regarded surveys said, we certainly would be. Do you know why? Well, it's the soft landing. It worked. It really seems to have worked. I don't know if you recall the idea of the soft landing. It was looked at with great suspicion not a little while ago. Here's a Bloomberg columnist and former New York Fed chairman, Bill Dudley, in March of this year on Bloomberg, talking about his article, the Fed has made a U.S. recession inevitable. Jerome Powell is far too optimistic about the chances of a soft landing. So the chances of, of, of generating a soft landing, uh, it seems very remote uh, because the economy, if you, try, if you start to push up the unemployment rate, uh, it's very hard to control that process. Uh, there's a, a rule called the SOM rule, which basically says every time the unemployment rate goes up by more than a half a percentage point, uh, the next stop is a full-blown recession. Well, now economists say 
we will hit a soft landing. The Economist magazine says we're already in a soft landing. I would be maybe a little suspicious because, you know, economists were the one who got it 100% wrong a little while ago. But it's actually great, great news. It's approaching achieving the impossible or at least the unprecedented. The markets understand this. Do people, does the average American, all right, forget him or her, does her, average, does even the average American who has and invests in their 401k and listens to Marketplace on public media, do they know? It's not every day we successfully draw an inside straight. It's hard to think of the last time that happened. Oh, wait, yeah, a highly effective vaccine for COVID was developed on a tighter time frame than the medical consensus came close to predicting. Good news is all around. It's usually wrapped in the bad or in the form of trying to convince us not to feel good. I mean, we know lifespans are down. It's true. Opioids and obesity are terrible for us. But so many health outcomes are on an upswing. American women, five-year survival rate for breast cancer, 91% in the United States. The U.S. has the best breast cancer cancer survival rate in the world, the best prostate cancer survival rate in the world, the second or third best colorectal survival rates in the world. Cuba gets in there and says it does better. I don't know whether to believe them. But these aren't just better comparatively. They're so much better over time. And it's not just cancer survival. It's premature birth survival rates and childhood leukemia rates, a type of cancer, and the eradication of so many diseases. Just like the example, the go-to example of a smart person is a rocket scientist, the go-to example of an unthinkably ambitious, life-saving measure used to be curing cancer. Yeah, what are you going to do? Cure cancer? Might as well try to cure cancer. Well, now we are essentially curing cancer. Not pancreatic, not all cancer, but we're making huge inroads. And by the way, Have you noticed that rocket science is also really, really advanced? Or was most of the coverage you saw about billionaires dabbling in space? They were. And you know what that did? That saved taxpayers enormously by offering non-dedicated government agencies that reach all of our satellites. There was a great article in the New York Times recently about coal pollution. Great because... There was a great outcome it reported, but also great because it greatly exemplified my thesis that good news can never be presented without a unhealthy dollop of downerism. Here's the headline. Deaths from coal pollution have dropped, but emissions may be twice as deadly. Mm, little mixed bag there. Deaths linked to coal exhaust have dropped, but coal exhaust is twice as likely to contribute to deaths as other air pollution a new study found. I guess it all evens out in the end. You can't win. Except totally wrong. We're living so much longer. In 1999, when the study started, and it was definitely worse before then in the 70s, in the 30s through the 90s, 50,000 Medicare recipients each year died in part because of the effects of coal plant emissions. It went from 50,000 in 1999 to 1,600 in 2020, a 95% drop. There's something like 97% less coal pollution in the air, and thousands of us are living longer because of it. Oh, but they must tell us, they literally must tell us in the headline, but make no mistake, coal is twice as deadly. Okay, so now we found out that coal is twice as deadly from the pollution of wood or diesel or gasoline. Well, then isn't it extra great that we're getting rid of coal almost entirely? It is. When the threats of yesterday turn benign, we so often don't treat that as a cure or a breakthrough or progress. We simply regard it as a non-threat. It disappears from our worries and we either forgot that it ever was a worry or 
Depending on how old we are, we never knew that in the first place. I am not a progressive by the standard definition of the word, but if that word were redefined as someone who values and recognizes progress, then that's what I am. I am, let's rebrand it, a progressivist. Statement of principles of the progressivist, progress is always occurring and we need to recognize this. A faulty sense of actual problems, how widespread they are, the proportion of them that are actual problems will thwart real progress. What's bad really is often bad, but it's also often not as bad as it seems, and it won't be bad forever, and a society that can't recognize progress becomes a society that won't have progress. So be a progressivist this holiday season. Pray for peace, keep perspective, and please recognize progress. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produced The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca spearheads the Department of Special Projects. We will be back next week with a melange of the new and the old, a lot of post-holiday frippery and ballast. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.